many individuals that are mobile with, and have multiple sclerosis, they're incredibly temperature sensitive. Mm. The ambient temperature goes up a little bit or they get a little bit active, their symptoms flare up. So by having cooling available, uh, they're able to extend their capacity to lead normal lives. That's Professor Craig Heller, and this is The Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, people, what's happening? How are you? What's going on? I am Rich Roll. I am your host. This is the podcast, the podcast where I sit down with the outliers, the big forward thinkers across all categories of positive paradigm breaking culture change. Why? To help all of us unlock and unleash our best, most authentic selves. So thank you for subscribing to the show, for giving us a review, for always making sure to use the Amazon banner ad at richworld.com for all your Amazon purchases. The banner ad is right there on the podcast page. Won't cost you anything extra. It's just a great, simple free way to support the mission. And it really does put some nice wind in our sails. So thank you so much to everybody who has made a habit out of using it. Got Stanford professor of biology, Craig Heller on the show today. Uh, He's going to drop some crazy mad knowledge on us uh, that I think is going to blow your mind a little bit, especially if you're an athlete. But uh, before that, I got much more to say about him. Before that, let's quickly take care of a little business, shall we? We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentous products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentous's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentous for yourself by going to livemomentous.com slash richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S dot com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this 
heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking Ons high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but Basically, you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. All right, so what if I told you that there was a way to significantly enhance athletic performance in a way that is equal to, if not substantially better than steroids? a way that doesn't involve any performance-enhancing drugs, is totally safe, legal, and sort of intuitively obvious. Well, I know what I would say. I would tell you that that just sounds like spam, right? And I hate spam. People that make these over-the-top claims that just seem uh, you know, not grounded in reality. Well, that is the claim of today's guest, Stanford professor of biology, Craig Heller, who in addition, quite ironically, to having been my human biology professor back in 1986, is one of the scientists who is pioneering research into a field called mammalian thermoregulation. And he is exploring the implications of this field on 
healing of the human body and the enhancement of athletic performance. So when we look at the limiters of, of athletic performance, one of the key limiters, if not the key limiter is elevated core temperature, right? And the idea of keeping your core temperature cool or regulated uh, as being important in the context of athletic performance is certainly not a new idea, right? Uh, there have been plenty of people who have been studying this and trying to develop products around maintaining core temp uh, for quite some time, ice vests, ice baths, glove designs, et cetera. The problem is, is that none of these products seem to actually be all that effective. But over the last decade, Professor Heller and his team have been pursuing what was initially an accidental find. Uh, and that find was that uh, by taking advantage of specialized heat transfer veins in the palms of your hands by way of this sort of specialized vacuum cooling glove that they devised, they found that they could rapidly, like incredibly rapidly cool athletes' core temperatures and dramatically improve exercise recovery and performance at levels previously, uh, you know, never before seen, totally off the charts. And when I say dramatic, I mean, the results that they have seen using this thing is like, it's crazy, it's nuts. Uh, and I'm not gonna spoil it, he's gonna tell you all about it, but I will say that industrial versions of the product are currently being used by tons of college football teams, including the Stanford football program, NFL teams like the Seattle Seahawks, the 49ers, the Rams and the Raiders, uh, NHL teams, I think the Toronto Maple Leafs use it, the Olympic uh, men's sand uh, volleyball team and speed skating teams use it. The Nike Oregon Project running team uses it. And uh, perhaps most interestingly, the 2014 FIFA World Cup champion German soccer team uh, used it in the most recent World Cup. Uh, so there's that, right? A commercial version of this glove product called the RTX Rapid Thermal Exchange uh, has recently come on the market. And that's sort of part of what piqued my interest in, in sitting down with Professor Heller. Uh, I first became aware of his research during a visit to Stanford last fall for my 25th college reunion. Uh, Professor Heller gave a presentation to alumni. I wasn't there, I wasn't able to see it, uh, but everyone was kind of talking about it. So I made a point at the time uh, of saying, you know, I've got I've to track this guy down and, and sit down with him for the podcast. Uh, and I was able to convince him to sit down and explain it all to me. And that's what we're gonna hear about today. Uh, disclaimer, I'm in no way affiliated with uh, this product, with this glove or any of this. In fact, I've never even tried it. I was and I am just super interested in exploring how emerging technology is helping athletes excel beyond previously imagined capabilities and kind of the implications of that, you know, the theoretical implications, the ethical implications of that. Uh, and I just wanted to learn more from the guy who's on the front lines doing the research. So. This is a compelling conversation. I tried to make sure that it didn't get too technical uh, and I really hope you enjoy it. Uh, there's quite a few links in the show notes if this conversation motivates you to take your inquiry further. So please be sure to check out uh, the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. Okay, let's step into the Stanford University Biology Department Office of Professor Craig Heller and get down to business. Enjoy. It's a, it's a treat to be uh, back at the farm. I'm a graduate and I don't make it back here that often. Although I was back here for my reunion last fall. And I believe, was it you or your colleague that gave a presentation on what we're gonna talk about today? 
Uh, it could have been. I think, it, I think it was you. And everyone yeah, was talking yes. about it. And for some reason I couldn't make it. So I missed yeah, it. Yeah. But I made a mental note to look into everything that you're doing. <laughs> and I've been following it with... Uh, it's a popular topic yeah. when uh, alumni come back or when new students are coming in. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a, it's a it's a interesting topic, I think, for anybody, particularly if you're into athletic performance. Yes, so uh, yes, let's yes. dive into it. I mean, I think... Uh, a good place to kind of kick it off and get into it would be to, um, you know, just talk a little bit about what happens when we exercise and what are the kind of predominant factors that lead to muscle fatigue? That's a good question because fatigue is something that has been unexplained. Uh, you, it's been assumed that you run out of oxygen. Yeah, sure. If you run out of oxygen, mm-hmm. you're going to fatigue. You run out of fuel. You run out of glucose. You run out of glycogen. Yes, you're going to fatigue. And then one uh, common idea is that it's the buildup of lactate mm-hmm. as a result of anaerobic metabolism in muscle. And it's true that lactate builds up when you go anaerobic but it's not necessarily a cause of fatigue. You can actually perform quite well at high lactate levels. And lactate is actually a common coinage of fuel. It goes from the muscle into the blood, goes from the blood to the liver. In the liver, it's converted to glucose, goes back into the blood and comes back to the muscle. That's pretty interesting because that is kind of the conventional wisdom. If you yes. get lactate buildup, yeah. you're going to seize up and it's, it's game over for you, right? right? But doesn't that have something to do with the body's ability to flush that lactate, like people have a different, different levels of aptitude in, in, in performing that biological function? Well, that is one of the ideas that, that is quite commonly held. But we, through our work, we've come to, I think, a different hypothesis. And what we have found is that temperature of the muscle is what is most directly causing muscle failure, muscle fatigue. Mm. So as the muscle temperature rises, it reaches a point at which it shuts off. And why does it shut off? It shuts off because it lacks fuel, doesn't Mm -hmm. have ATP. So why doesn't it? Uh, Studies that are not ours, that were uh, sort of cellular studies of muscle, showed that one critical enzyme, pyruvate kinase, which is necessary for getting pyruvate into the mitochondria to produce ATP. So this is the rate-limiting step for getting fuel into the mitochondria. And that enzyme is temperature-sensitive. Mm-hmm. So it shuts down. About it's super temperature-sensitive, right? Yes, yeah. and reversible. So it shuts off at a particular temperature around you know 40 degrees, 41 degrees centigrade. And then when it cools down a little bit, it's reactivated. Kicks back, yeah. Now, what happens when it shuts off is that then you can only produce ATP through what we call glycolysis. And that's the end product of glycolysis is lactate. Mm. So you can imagine that once you shut down the mitochondria, once you prevent fuel from getting into the mitochondria, you're going to build up lactate. Mm, Interesting. So then you rest for a little while and you may resolve some of that lactate, but at the same time, the muscle temperature is going down. Right, 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 right. (laughs) And and whether you're, I I mean, I would imagine that, you know, if you're performing this exercise in a a hot climate or in a humid climate, that will be exacerbated. But even if you're doing it in a cold climate, you're still, I mean, we don't have 
internal markers for our core temperature, right? No, Those are no. only on our skin. So we don't know we don't feel how hot it. we're burning on the inside. That's so right. even if we we're cold, we may be overheating in, interior, in yeah. our interior. And, and the reality is we have the capacity to cook our muscles. So muscle metabolism during heavy activity can go up 50, 60 fold. Mm. The blood flow, which is the only way the heat gets out of the muscle, can't follow that, can't accommodate that. So any sort of extreme activity is going to result in a rise in temperature of the muscle. So you re- literally have to shut it off to protect it. Hmm, interesting. And is this impacted? Is there, is there a differentiation uh, whether you are performing this activity, this exercise in using your anaerobic energy system versus your aerobic system? Uh, not really, because... Uh, you're working anaerobically, you can reach high levels of intensity for a short period of time. Working aerobically, you can reach lower levels of intensity over longer periods of time. So if you integrate the two, you can have equivalent amounts of heat production. The difference with the aerobic is you have more time for the blood to sweep the Mm. accumulated heat out of the muscle, Mm -hmm. as well as the the, the, the lactate. So, so I gather from what you're saying is that basically heat really is, it, this is the number one limiter. Like this is the stopgap. This is where the door shuts. That's what we have found. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what we think has not been appreciated in the past. Right. And how did you come arrive at this conclusion? <laughs> well, it's, it, it's very interesting. We actually uh, have worked on temperature regulation for a long time in my lab and our interests were mostly physiological. Uh, As a matter of fact, we're mostly studying how the brain regulates body temperature. Mm -hmm. And we worked with unusual animals like hibernators and so forth. And one day an anesthesiologist colleague said, well, you guys think you know so much about temperature regulation. I bet you can't solve a problem we have in the recovery room. Well, what's that? Well, our patients coming out of surgery may shiver for hours. And we apply radiant energy, we put warm blankets on them and they just continue to shiver. Mm-hmm. And this is a real problem. So can't, I said, can't warm up their core temperature. Right. So, so we said, oh, it's trivial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it's a very hard problem. And we realized it was a hard problem when we went over to the recovery room and observed. When a patient is under anesthesia, they're vasodilated. In other words, there's lots of blood flowing to the skin, blood flowing everywhere. That's the result of the anesthesia. So they become hypothermic. When they come out of anesthesia and they're hypothermic, they tightly vasoconstrict. Mm -hmm. So the vasoconstriction keeps heat in, but it also prevents heat from coming in. So it's like having someone with a fur coat on and then trying to warm them up by putting heat on the outside of the fur coat. Right, right. I got you. So, all right. So maybe we could uh, take a left turn and just quickly kind of recap how we temperature regulate, right? Through the the vasoconstriction and, you know, the regulation of our blood vessels that are pumping our blood to our extremities. Right, right. So anyway, uh, we produce heat internally and... Uh, all of that heat comes out of the muscle in the blood and that blood always goes back to the heart. So the heat produced anywhere in the body goes back to the core of the body. Now the core of the body is only about 10% of your total body mass. It's the internal organs and the brain. Okay. Mm -hmm. So heat produced peripherally 
coming back to the core can heat the core up fairly rapidly. Okay, so what we have to do is we have to get rid of that heat. So the heart is sending the blood out to the whole body. And if heat has to be dissipated, it sends more of that blood to the periphery, to the skin, where it can be dissipated to the environment. But what we have found is that all skin areas are not equal Mm -hmm. in terms of being able to dissipate heat. Mm -hmm. There are only certain skin areas that have the vascular, the blood vessel adaptations to act as radiators to dump heat. And this is what we call the glabrous skin or the non-hairy skin. Mm -hmm. So it's the palms of the hands, the soles of the feet, and the face above the beard line. Mm -hmm. Now, why should that be so? We are mammals. Mammals have fur. Mm -hmm. So they're great at preserving heat, conserving heat. But then when they exercise, they have to dissipate that heat and they have to do it in spite of the fact that they're wearing a fur coat. So where do they lose the heat? They have to lose it over the non-hairy skin. Those are the pads of the feet, in some animals, the nose, the tongue, the ears. And under these skin surfaces, there are special blood vessels. These blood vessels are called arteria venous anastomoses. They are shunts that can take the blood from the arteries directly to the veins Mm -hmm. rather than through the high-resistance capillaries. They have like a superhighway, right? A superhighway, right. From your palm or the the top of your head or or your forehead (laughs) or your feet, right? Directly to the core. Right. And the veins in these skin areas are arranged in a big network, uh, which is called a plexus. So... What happens is high throughput of blood goes from the arteries into these big venous networks and they act as radiators, okay? Mm-hmm. So back to the anesthesia, okay, if I, if I may, because that's, that's critical. Okay, so we were challenged with this idea. How in the world could we get heat into these cold patients? So we got the idea that if we put an arm in a negative pressure environment, in other words, a partial vacuum, that would pull blood into that arm. And if we heated the arm, that would heat the whole body. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, we did it and it worked unbelievably well. I mean, we were expecting to maybe decrease the rewarming time by 25%. Mm -hmm. It was amazing. These patients didn't shiver at all. Mm. They came back up to temperature in eight minutes, nine minutes, 10 minutes. It was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it counteracted the vasoconstriction, allowed the blood to start flowing, and was a super effective transport for this heat back to where it needed to go. Right. But we couldn't explain it. Hmm. Even calculating the surface area. I feel like you just explained it though. Or did you not know this well, at the time? Or? No, no. You observe it and you say, wow. And then you start doing the math. And you say, how in the world could this be possible? And we discovered two things. One, which seems counterintuitive, and that is the arm didn't matter. It was only the hand. Mm. The other thing we found out, of course, is that what matters in terms of temperature regulation is the core of the body, which is only 10% of the body mass. Mm -hmm. You heat that up, you stop shivering, and then gradually the rest of the body comes up. But here is the amazing thing. We could not explain how we could get so much heat in through a hand. 
And then we went into the anatomy and we found out there were these blood vessels that had been characterized. They're in Gray's Anatomy, you know, not the TV right. program, the, the book. The real thing. The real thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. And they're described in Gray's Anatomy, but nobody knew what they were for. Hmm. There was nothing in the literature that said what these blood vessels Interesting. were for. Yeah. Is, this, is this where the bears come in? Well, the bears are, of course, the obvious example of how fur allows you to conserve heat, but makes it difficult to lose heat. Right. So the conundrum okay. with the bear and looking at the bear is obviously in the wintertime, they can you know, conserve heat right. and do what they do. But how do they regulate their temperature in the summertime with all this fur when right. all they're, they're trying to just dissipate it through their tongue and their paws? That and just that's, doesn't seem that's possible. Ex that's exactly what they do. And if you take infrared pictures of these animals, that's where the heat's coming out. Uh, and it's the same th same way with with all other mammals. We've we've actually taken infrared videos of elephants, and even though elephants don't have fur, they predominantly lose heat through their ears, those big floppy ears, mm -hmm. through their trunks, and through their feet. Mm. And you can do an infrared of an elephant in uh, out in the zoo enclosure, either standing in water or standing out in dry land. And you can see what they change is they change the blood flow to the ears, to the trunk and the feet. Mm. So if they're standing in water, the ears shut off. If they're out on dry land, the ears turn on. Mm -hmm. And that's how they're dissipating heat. Yeah. I mean, I would assume that uh, that's an evolutionary uh, reason why their ears are so large. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> now we have exactly the same anatomy not the big ears, <laughs> but the same blood vessel anatomy. So we predominantly lose excess heat through the palms of our hands, the soles of our feet, and our face. Mm -hmm. Now, if you shake someone's hand, you can tell right away, are they cool or are they mm -hmm. warm? Okay, You couldn't tell that if you just grabbed their arm. That doesn't change very much. Right. Okay? But it's the palms of the hands, the soles of the feet, and the face. That's where we dump heat when we have to... Uh, really get rid of it. So what we did with these anesthetized patients, we were using this system in reverse. Mm -hmm. We had no idea what it was. And then once we realized, oh my God, this is a mammalian adaptation for heat loss, we said, let's study recovery from hyperthermia. Mm -hmm. So in, we started that with a lab tech who liked to go to the gym every day after work. So we just said, okay, Vin, would you do your workout in the lab? We'll build you a pull-up bar. We'll get other equipment. You can do your workout in the lab, and then we'll use you as our guinea pig. We just wanted to get someone overheated so we could then measure the parameters of getting the heat out. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he did pull-ups. He liked to do pull-ups. He could do a set of, you no, know, maybe 15, 20 pull-ups, uh, take a rest, and then do another set, maybe 14, 13, 14, and then... Declining from decline, there, Decline, right? yeah. So over a period of about six weeks, we had him do that. And after he did his 10 sets of pull-ups, we would then have him hyperthermic and we would extract the heat. We'd measure what's the best temperature gradient, what's the best vacuum and so forth. Okay. Oh, how, do you, how do you measure core temperature though? Oh, we measured core temperature in the esophagus, the food tube. So we take a thermocouple, which is a temperature measuring device about two feet long, and we put it up the nose. Uh -huh. It goes up the nose that and down the comfy. throat and ends up at about the level of the heart. And the heart is the best integrated temperature. 
Mm, okay. But what I didn't tell you is I didn't tell you where the vacuum comes in. Right. Okay. We're getting to that. Yeah, because I mean, the question that I think that would lead into that is, look, the idea of cooling core temperature is nothing new, right? Yeah. Endurance right. athlete, you right. know, athletes have been wearing ice chests and as an ultra marathoner, I would run with, you know, like ice packs in my hands and Both things like this. Both of those are so bad is, ideas. I know, we're gonna get into why. <laughs> and it's it's an interesting, you know, counterintuitive yeah. reason yeah. why. But yeah. but so the, the, the overall notion is certainly not revolutionary or new, right? But your approach uh, sort of solves some of the problems that uh, you know a lot of people are doing. They're they're utilizing these techniques sort of somewhat naively, in yeah. the sense, and they actually could be counterproductive. Right. right. Yep. Absolutely. So anyway, we had Vin uh, do these uh, sets of pull-ups, and uh, at the end of ten sets, we would then extract the heat. And one day after we did this, he went back to the pull-up bar and he did the same number of pull-ups as in his first set. Mm -hmm. And we said, holy crow, what does that mean? That means that the muscle fatigue was due to the rise in temperature. So we started cooling him after every other set of pull-ups. Okay. Mm -hmm. So in this first six weeks, he went from doing 100 pull-ups in his 10 sets to 180. Mm -hmm. If you went to the gym twice a week and worked out like that, that's reasonable. The next six weeks, we were cooling him after every other set of pull-ups. He went from 180 to 618. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's crazy. Can you imagine 618 pull-ups? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and uh, so that was our first, that was our eureka experiment. Right, I mean, with a population of one, one. you know, hardly, hardly going to uh, right. survive peer review, but enough to pique your interest and, right. and delve deeper. So then uh, the news got around and we had people wanting to try it out. So we had some NFL football players who wanted to try it out. So they came over to the lab and we asked them, you know, what exercise do you like to do? What are you good at? So one uh, said he liked to do dips and he could do a lot of dips. He could mm -hmm. do 40 dips in his first set and then he could probably do five sets. That's what normally he does in his workout and he's totally spent after that. So he came in one day and uh, we actually did this over in the gym and that's exactly what he did. He did 40 dips in his first set and he did five sets and he said, I'm spent, that's about it. A couple days later, he comes back and between each of his sets, we cool him. Mm -hmm. In that one day, he doubled the number of dips that he did. Yeah, I mean, that's not an incremental change. That's, no, you know, that's, so, extraordinary. So, yeah, and so that shows that the heat was limiting, but now does that have a benefit? So over the next four or five weeks, he tripled the number of dips he could do. Mm -hmm. And what we found out in that and in more scientific experiments with larger sample sizes is that the cooling enables you to increase the capacity of your workout. You increase the capacity of your workout, you get a conditioning effect. So essentially, in order to get the gains, you cool. But once you get the gains, you keep them. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to keep cooling to 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 right, have right, the conditioning right. benefit. Right. I mean, we use you know we use the term recovery you know quite casually and yeah. loosely. So you know perhaps we could define exactly what that means. Well, recovery has multiple dimensions. First of all, it's the getting over the immediate cause of the fatigue or failure. So that's temperature, that's oxygen debt, that's uh, uh, blood glucose and lactate, so forth, okay? But then there's longer term recovery. So 
when someone would come into the lab and they would show that all of a sudden they could double their capacity, they would do much, much more work than they were used to. Mm-hmm. They would always say, I'm going to be so sore tomorrow. Never are. Yeah, they never, never are. are. They come so, back and they do the same thing the next day. Right. And and soreness is, I mean, what is the you know, what is the causal factor what, in soreness? Right. So that's that is an interesting uh, question. Uh, the general assumption is that when you have an extreme workout, you generate lots of little muscle tears. And of course, that requires re- re- to be repaired. Mm-hmm. Okay. If they're not repaired, you get inflammation. So delayed onset muscle soreness is characteristic symptom of over uh, activity. Right. Okay. When you're, you're, you're more sore the next day. It's not the next day. It's the, the day second after. day. Yeah, the day after. Right. Yes. So that's why the delayed uh-huh. onset muscle soreness. So we had two hypotheses about this. One is that uh, when you overheat tissue, you cause the expression of certain genes, which are called heat shock genes. And one of the things the heat shock genes do is they shut down all other gene expression. Mm. Because you don't want to be producing new proteins in an environment where they'll be denatured, right? That's mm-hmm. the sort of the intuitive explanation. So one of the things that we are thinking, and we have no proof of this because we've never actually uh, tested it, is that by cooling, we are preventing the expression of the heat shock genes and therefore the repair genes mm-hmm. Uh, are active and they repair the muscle tears and so forth without generating inflammation. Right. So, and in turn, that's expediting that process. Expe- right. Right. You're 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 shortening right. that time period. Right. So the muscle is repairing itself more quickly. Right. Now, there's another uh, char- there's another character that uh, plays a role in inflammation, and that's uh, a cytokine. Uh, a, a molecule that is released by tissues associated with repair and so forth. And this is called interleukin-6. And interleukin-6 is uh, generated in active muscles at low levels. And what has been found in studies, not ours, uh, uh, studies elsewhere, that if you overheat the muscle and exercise it, you get a synergistic effect. So Mm -hmm. heat causes the release of interleukin-6 and overexercise creates uh, overproduction of interleukin-6, but you put the two together and you get a synergistic effect. In low levels, interleukin-6 probably plays an important role in the repair process. At high levels, it's one of the key factors in inflammation. Mm -hmm. Interesting. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made. And that, my friends, is a Birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. 
Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive, and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily, personally, for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now, for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Well, I want to get into the actual, you know, 
cooling yeah. technology and all of yeah. that. But but while it's on my mind right now, I'm thinking, you know, I'm just sort of relating it to my own experience and thinking about um, heat acclimation. Like for example, mm-hmm. there are endurance athletes who, you know, prepare for uh, super hot races. And they, for example, there's a race called the Badwater 135, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're running across Death Valley, it's 135 yeah, degrees. Yep. So the athletes in preparation for this race will quite often put their treadmill in a sauna and, yeah. and get exposed yeah. to that environment. And the idea behind that, of course, is that they acclimate to that, that their body somehow um, you know, reaches or approximates mm-hmm. you know, an adaptation there. Yeah. So. Is that is there is there, is that fact is that fallacy and how does that dovetail into, you know, your methodology which would sort of, in certain respects, you could make the argument is sort of a, you know a contrary um, protocol. Uh, yeah, I'm familiar with the Badwater because we used to have some of those ultra marathoners who would come into the uh-huh. lab after hours and use our hot room to do exactly yeah, yeah. that. Uh-huh. Would, the treadmill in the hot room. They uh-huh. would, uh, so what we found actually is that if you cool simultaneously with the exercise in the heat, you increase the capacity to work in the heat. And Hold on. All right. Hold on. I'm just trying to get that. So it's, you're basically using both. Like it's, okay. So here's the experiment. You have a treadmill in the hot room. You put someone on the treadmill, they work until their core temperature goes up to 39 degrees, mm-hmm. which is what our institutional review board says we have to, that's where we you have to cut stop. Them off. That's where we have to cut it <laughs> off. Right, right. The insurance policy. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, okay. Then if you cool one hand during this exercise, you can double the time that they're on the treadmill. Oh, so they can actually lengthen the amount of time that they can train in heat. Right, right. And then what you find is that if you do this day after day after day, or you know every other day or every third day, the amount of time with the cooling increases. Mm-hmm. So you're getting more efficient heat extraction. Interesting. Okay. And eventually after about a week or two, you start seeing the control days extending as well. So you are seeing a conditioning effect, not just the, cool, the effect of the cooling, but a conditioning effect. What could that be? It could be increased capacity to uh, perfuse these these tissues. Uh, one thing that's been known for marathoners is that uh, practice results in a lowered threshold for sweating. Mm-hmm. So they sweat at a lower temperature. That's that's uh, one way to at least slow down the, the rate of rise of core temperature. But we can't really explain mm-hmm. what the adaptation is that results from this conditioning of working in the heat. But we know that by extending the amount of time they can work in the heat, you get a conditioning effect. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. And are, are, have you found that, that people vary in um, how they sort of you know, regulate their core temperature? So for example, this is my own personal history that I'm gonna interject here, but yeah. my feet are always boiling hot. My whole mm-hmm. life as a kid, boiling, I, can't, I really like, I think I live in California, just because I don't like wearing shoes. Like if it was up to me, I'd wear flip-flops every day. The minute I put shoes on, my feet overheat, they sweat Mm. terribly. It's been a problem my entire life. In fact, right now I have shoes on, it makes me very uncomfortable. (laughs) Take them off. And my mother would always say like, what is, you know, what's the deal with you? Like it's, I know it's not normal. Like I, I and so my wife will always say, you just burn really hot. 
So is there a differentiation between people and how we kind of regulate these? Yeah, these yeah there, there definitely is a lot of variation between individuals. There's variation between the sexes. There's variation in the same individual with time of year. Mm-hmm. Uh, some individuals, they'll come into the lab and they will work out and remain vasoconstricted. Their, their hands mm-hmm. remain cold. Others, as soon as they start to exercise, boom, those vessels open up. Interesting. So there is, there's quite a bit of variance and we don't understand why. Mm-hmm. So, so somebody who, who is very good at that, um, just sort of genetically is going to be, you know, perhaps have a, have a leg up athletically right. when they're performing in, in right. high heat conditions. Sure. And just look at the body types of people who do short-term anaerobic activities versus right, right, endurance right. activities. Mm-hmm. The thinner and you are, the bigger your surface area, the better you are at losing heat. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right, so let's get into uh, the difference between how you approach this problem versus the conventional approach, which is you know the ice vest or hold, hold ice cubes in your hands and you know what's going on with the science and, and kind of this technology that you guys have developed. Okay, the critical thing is that in order to dump heat efficiently, you have to open up these special blood vessels in the non-hairy skin, okay? So what controls them? They're controlled both by the internal temperature and by the local temperature. So even if you are overheated, you stick your hand in a bucket of ice water, you vasoconstrict. Mm -hmm. So you may feel cool because your hands are cool, but you're not losing any heat. Right, none of that, none of that coldness is actually getting transported because right. all of your, your veins and your arteries have right. tight clamped down right. and the blood, blood's not flowing. Right, and you, you, most people have experienced this. They exercise, they're hot, they have to get ready for a dinner party, they go in and take a cold shower and they put on their clothes they feel great and then boom, they break out in a huge sweat. And that's me like all the time. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, because what happens when you cool the overall body surface, you feel cool because that's where we sense temperature, which you said, okay? But that's not how we lose heat. We lose heat through these specialized body surfaces. Mm-hmm. So if you uh, put on, let's say a cold vest, okay, you may feel good, but your core temperature is not going down, it's going up. Right, it's actually having the, the reverse effect that, right. that you're trying to right. achieve. Right, so I think that it's really important to make sure that you keep your heat exchange surfaces open. And the way you do that is by not overcooling your other body surfaces. So your overall body is a great sensor, but it's not a great effector, as we say, and not, not a good heat exchanger. Mm-hmm. So how do you solve this dilemma? You need to cool, you need to cool the hands, right. but you want to avoid the vasoconstriction so right. that the you cold can actually get transported. Right, ice water is not a good idea. So you have to control the temperature. So, I mean, the old folk remedy of putting your hands, your wrists under tap water. Well, tap water is not really cold, mm-hmm. especially in an environment in which you're overheated, right? So that's why that old folk remedy works. Right, because it's it's certainly colder than your core temperature, right. but it's right. not feeling right. cold to you. Right, yeah. Right, interesting. Um, I just lost my question that I was gonna ask. Oh yeah, so the, the caveat I, th- I, I would assume would be, if you're, you know, you're running the bad water right. and you're out in Death Valley, 
and then you just immerse your entire body into a, a bath of ice water. Then that, the cold would be so overwhelming that it would overcome the that vasoconstriction. Works. That works. Because you're just in a complete environment yep. Of, yep. of freezing cold. Absolutely, that works. And that is the recommended remedy for hyperthermia. Mm-hmm. Okay? But the problem is how often do you have a tub of ice water? Right, it's available? not exactly convenient. Yeah. So back to the dilemma, yeah. right? Avoiding the vasoconstriction and still transporting the cold. So right. this is this is probably where a lot of the work had to go into solving this equation, right? Well, so what you, in a practical sense, what you want to do is you want to, of course, get out of the heat, which means in the shade, you may want to take uh, uh, advantage of having some water available. So here's an interesting anthropological uh, note. If you look at the, the hunters and gatherers, the... Uh, uh, the uh, uh, oh, in in Australia the uh, the the, the, the Bushmen, Aboriginals the, the, uh-huh. yeah the the Kalahari oh no, no uh, I'm sorry I'm sure it's yeah I think it's the Kalahari uh, uh, Bushmen uh, they are uh, pursuit hunters they will run down their prey mm-hmm. okay and they do it through persistence they just keep on going keep on going keep on going they may carry with them a little gourd of water. And what do they do with it? Okay. When they, they feel they're overheating, they stop. They put a little bit of water on their hands. They rub it on their hands. They rub it on their face. And they may sip a little bit. But what they're doing is they're using that water to enhance heat loss from the body surfaces where heat is, is mostly mm-hmm. uh, dissipated. And eventually the a gazelle or whatever it is they're chasing will wear itself out. Right, right, right. It might take a little while, yeah, but yeah. eventually. Yeah, but they, they just keep right on going by maximizing their heat loss and, and uh, sort of titrating out their metabolic energy. Right, it's an interesting thing because, uh, you know, your intuition is, well, it's good to sweat. Like if you're sweating, yes, yeah. then that evaporates and that's cooling you mm-hmm. down, but, but it's actually not a very efficient system when you wanna keep going because you're losing water and you're losing electrolytes. So if you can, if you can cool your core temperature down without sweating yeah, or, or right, cool it right. and prevent yourself from further sweating, that's more efficient. Also, right? every drop of sweat that falls off your body does you no good. Mm-hmm. So you've lost water, which is extremely valuable. Right, you need that water on your skin surface to have, right. to have it evaporate there to, evaporate to get the effect. On the skin surface, right? Right, mm-hmm. okay, so. So let's get into the 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 solution, right? Which comes down okay. to this vacuuming. Okay, right? the vacuum. <laughs> right. yeah. So b- back to our uh, experiments on the uh, patients in the recovery room. Uh, we got the idea of applying a vacuum from some work that was being done by NASA back then. They were doing experiments in which they had people in bed rest for months, you know, for 60 days. And they were trying to simulate weightlessness and then they were trying to see if they could mitigate the effects of weightlessness by using a vacuum to pull blood into the lower part of the body. Mm-hmm. So they had skirts on the individuals that they could evacuate and they could you know, use that to pull more blood in, to increase the circulation of the lower right, part. Right, right, because that becomes a big problem, right? right? That and right. like bone density loss. Right. So that was where the idea for the vacuum came in. And we said, well, if we can pull more blood into an arm and we can heat the arm, then we'll increase the rate of warming. 
Okay, so that's where the vacuum came in. And then when we came to realize that what we were dealing with were these heat exchangers, these Venus networks that uh, act as radiators, we realized that what the vacuum is doing is it's essentially putting the radiator of a Mack truck in a Honda. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. <laughs> we're just making it possible to extract so much more heat out of those surfaces. Yeah, you're can, putting a turbocharger in there. Right. And, and we can get, you know, a maximum... Uh, of, in some cases, anywhere between 40 and 60 watts out of a hand, mm-hmm. uh, which is a lot of heat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. And it's not a lot of vacuum pressure, right? No. It's a slight no. exertion. It's, slight ex- it's a slight amount of vacuum because if you use too much vacuum, you'll get edema, mm-hmm. swelling. Right. Okay. So it's about as much vacuum as you can suck through a straw. So you develop this, essentially a glove that has... Right circulating coolant it has water. A, yeah it has a surface that is a heat sink that is in contact with the palm and then the hand is in a negative pressure environment a partial vacuum so you're increasing the diameter of these veins you're increasing the blood that flows through those veins and therefore you're enhancing the amount of heat that you're bringing from the core of the body to the surface and the amount of cooler blood you're sending back to the core. Right, and the, and the, 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 water, the cool water is circulating in this glove because it's, it has to keep moving, right? Because right. your hand will heat it. If it's, stays, right. if it's static, it, won't, right. it will lose its impact. Right. It's circulating. Yeah, how many uh, prototypes <laughs> did you guys go through before you were able to lock it down? Oh, I could show them to you. Yeah. <laughs> and it's still not locked down. <clears throat> so it's commercialized now. It's uh, being uh, sold by a company called Avacore. Uh, A-V-A-C-O-R-E. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which stands for arteriovenous... Arteriovenous and anastomosis at core yes. temperature. Have <laughs> 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 a core. Yeah. So, um, uh, and what they have available... Uh, commercially and which is being used by you know, many athletic teams and individuals uh, is a standalone device. So it is something that's portable. Uh, it doesn't mm-hmm. require being plugged in. It, it uses as cold source uh, a thermos of ice slurry. Okay? And uh, you use it by sticking your hand in it for a few minutes and taking it. So our football team, for example, they have them under the bench. And when they come off the field, they stick their hand in and it takes enough of that excess heat out that when they go back onto the field, they're refreshed. Right. And and what have you found in terms of, you know, optimal use? Like how long do you leave? What's the optimal amount of time to have your hand in there? And how frequently do you need to keep doing well, it? We find that three minutes is a really good interval. And mm-hmm. uh, we just sort of stumbled on that because most people who are exercising don't want to sit around too long, okay? Right. Uh, but it's important to to dump a significant amount of heat. Now, if you look at the rate of temperature decline with use, duration of use, it's sort of an exponential curve. So you get the most benefit early on. So you get the most benefit in the first three to five minutes. I see. So if you want to use it for 10 or 15, great but you get most of the benefit in the first three. Right. And is there a sort of a law of diminishing returns as well? If you're using it like every 20 minutes throughout a two or three hour workout, as opposed to every half an hour or no. you haven't, you haven't found like any kind of, I guess it would, it, it's really going to depend on the athlete, the temperature, what kind of activity they're doing, right. all that kind of stuff. Right. right. And, and, 
is there an impact? Like what is the, is there a differentiation between using it periodically throughout a workout versus just doing it at the end of a workout as like a sort of post-workout, you know, one boom, you know, one-time recovery thing? Well, those are two different benefits. Using it during the workout extends the capacity of the workout. Using it at the end speeds up recovery. Right. Okay. So those are two different phenomena. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, this is amazing stuff. I mean, you know, for any athlete out there, you know, expediting recovery is the holy grail. Yeah. You know, when we're yeah. talking about, uh, you know, elite athletes in, in any discipline, we're talking about the most talented, the, the hardest working, you know, they have everything dialed in, their, their lives revolve around high performance. And, uh, and this seems to be, you know, a new frontier that is paving the way for gigantic performance gains. I mean, yeah. this is kind of yeah. um, an amazing yeah. breakthrough. And I've, I've been watching it ever since I found out about it last fall. And I know that there are NFL teams using it and athletes, it's out there, right? Yeah. But I also feel like, why, why aren't more people talking about this? You know, <laughs> well, like what's, what's the journey been like of trying to, you know, create this prototype and bring it to market and, you know, through the, obviously, you know, you're first and foremost a professor at this university, but this is kind of an entrepreneurial thing as well. And, you know, what has that journey been like for you? Uh, you put your finger on it. I'm a professor. I'm yeah. not a business person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah well, you, I mean, well, first of all, how does it work at a university? I would imagine, you know, does Stanford own the patent yeah. on this? Stanford owns the patent. They license it to a company. Right. And do you have any okay. say in that? Are you involved in that? Or um, Well, I guess we have- I don't want to get you in trouble. No, no, we have an advisory <laughs> capacity. Uh-huh. So, so our Office of Technology Licensing uh, will listen to us, but they don't necessarily take our advice. They do mm. their their goal and their mandate is to do what is best for the technology. This goes back to um, uh, government uh, legislation, which uh, was uh, was uh, actually put in place to make sure that the benefits from publicly funded work get back to the public. Right. In other words. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I gotcha. Yeah. So that's their, their mandate. They, they have to do what is, so if they uh, get a request for a license from a company that is really well positioned to do great things with the technology, uh, they will go for that. Interesting. And is that kind of a, a university-wide policy? Yes. Or, yes. So basically yes. any professor on this campus through, uh, by virtue of the, res- the, the yes. research that they're doing on site here becomes the property of the university yes. and then becomes subject to that same right. procedure. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So I would imagine there's some politics involved there. Well, no, I think it's actually a way of avoiding politics yeah. because everything is dealt with in the same way. And actually, you know, as I just said, professors are not necessarily the best people to take mm-hmm. things uh, into the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not necessarily the best people to take things into manufacturing. Right. Okay. Uh, people think that the, the research is really the hardest step, but no, uh, you, you can do the research uh, and then find a huge number of hurdles in actually getting that research out there, uh, getting it implemented, getting yeah, it- Yeah, birthing into, it into the real world right. as a whole. That's a different that animal is, completely. Yeah. A, a businessman told me once, he said, 
you know, his calculation is that if it takes you a million dollars to develop your first prototype, you have to at least multiply that by 10 to get it to market. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's daunting, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, even in this uh, haven of entrepreneurship uh, where we currently reside, right? Right, right. Interesting. So, so right now, I mean, the first kind of uh, model of this that went out into the world was kind of a, uh, a more industrial strength it is, version, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Which, which I think is available to purchase. It's like a thousand bucks or something like that. Well, now. the first one was 3,000. 3,000. And uh-huh. uh, the reason for that, once again, is that when you come up with a prototype, uh, you are not necessarily concerned about making it as simple, as streamlined uh, as you can. So you end up with something with lots of parts and lots of unnecessary components. So then you have to put that together, mm-hmm. okay? So it takes a lot of labor. So the first devices that uh, the company came out with uh, had too many parts. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> they were too complicated to put together. Uh, you couldn't make them in mass quantities because it wasn't engineered for that. So now they have simplified the technology so that the price has come down by, uh, by you know, two-thirds, uh, Right, so the the right now there is an Indiegogo campaign going on to sort of fund right. the consumer version of this, which is which is the campaign's almost over. I mean, you guys have raised you're well above your threshold on that, but but the consumer model is going to be available for like three hundred thirty dollars or something. Right, like that. I think that's what they're yeah. they're saying. And this the when you say consumer, uh, it'll be simpler, it'll be smaller. Uh, and it'll be designed for personal use. So if you can imagine one of these devices being used by a whole team, mm-hmm. it gets pretty cruddy pretty yeah, fast. Yeah, you're, you're going to want the industrial strength <laughs> one, right? <laughs> right. And then you have, to be, you have to clean it out and so forth. So uh, the personal use one will be uh, obviously something that you, you one person would use and or a couple people would use. But right. It'd be cleanable, of right, course. Right, right, right. And and you have the the anecdotal kind of uh, you know reactions of these athletes that are using it. I know um, the Seattle Seahawks right. are using it. The San yeah. Francisco 49ers are using it. There's some Olympic athletes, a speed skater, yeah. a professional or, vo- or a Olympic beach volleyball, volleyball beach volleyball player. player yeah. The Stanford football team. Are yeah. the swimmers using it here? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, some gotta, have. I know. Got to talk to Ted Knapp. The coach over there. Yeah, we Get should. Get on it. We should. Talk. So the benefit for the swimmers, of course, would be in the gym. Mm-hmm. The swimmers spend a lot of time in the gym. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they do a lot of strength conditioning, but actually, there was a student up at University of British Columbia who did his thesis on this, and up at the University of British Columbia, they have two Olympic size. They may have more, but they have two Olympic size pools at different temperatures. So one is kept cool, and the other is kept a little warmer. Uh-huh. And uh, so what he found was that if swimmers doing sprints use the device that it increased the performance of those in the warm pool to be the equivalent of the performance yeah, in yeah. the cool pool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm, so I'm you don't you. think about overheating when you're swimming because your skin is cooled by the water, but you do generally. Oh, you definitely, you definitely are overheating even yeah. in the cold water. Yeah. Yeah. And I can tell you, you know, those days where you show up and something went wacky with the heat and the water's too hot, like you, you just, you just blow up. Like you can't yeah. go, and yeah. you're like, what's wrong? Like it, do, it doesn't, because and it doesn't really feel that hot, but yeah. you get overheated really quickly. I mean, I could see, you know, benefits with them using it, you know, in the yeah. pool as well. So. Yeah. 
Uh, it's very, very interesting. And, 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 and beyond that, there have been some, some peer reviewed studies that have oh, yeah. come out on yes. this as well. So yes, it's yeah. not just, oh, hey, you know, Joe from the gym did 600 yeah, pull-ups. Yeah. Like yeah. there's some real science here too. Yeah. So yeah. maybe explain a little bit about what that's all about. Well, we've done uh, several studies um, with typical scientific design. You have a sample size of N subjects and you do a crossover, for example, half with, half without, and, and then reverse. So one of the first ones we did was with a number of uh, members of the Stanford wrestling team. And uh, we did, this was following up the original observation. This was a pull-up study mm-hmm. in which we uh, had them do essentially the same thing, 10 sets of pull-ups, three-minute rests, with or without the cooling. And with these, we started with the cooling. So we showed that, once again, over six weeks, they increased on the average uh, two-and-a-half-fold, so 250% increase. Wow. Okay. And then when they stopped cooling, uh, they plateaued. So they kept their gains, but they didn't continue. Mm-hmm. So we found the same thing with uh, bench press experiments. We've found the same thing with other kinds of activities. That Have you, the studies generally been set up where you're using the cooling glove and and not, or have have they done ones where you're using the cooling glove and then the other group is doing ice baths or some other kind of similar type of? No, we haven't protocol. done that. We 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 haven't done that. What we usually do is either with or without or we'll have the device set at different temperatures. Mm-hmm. So one of the experiments we did, for example, was with a group of uh, uh, obese women. Uh, we wanted to test whether or not we could increase the capacity of obese individuals to use exercise as part of their weight loss program. Mm-hmm. Okay? Because if you are overweight, you're carrying more weight so that your exertion is greater and also you're more insulated. Right. So, so you have two things going against you. So we had a group of, uh, of people who signed up for the study and we set them up in such a way that they all were using the device, but half of them, it, for half of them, the device was set at a temperature that had no benefit. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what we found was the ones that had the benefit, the cooling, they rapidly increased their their exercise capacity, and they were losing weight. Mm, interesting. Okay? But the most interesting thing was the compliance. The individuals that were not getting the effect of cooling, they had all sorts of absenteeism, all sorts of excuses why they couldn't come in that day or another day. And the women that were getting the cooling, they had practically 100% wow. attendance. They, for them, the exercise was pleasant. And for those who weren't getting the cooling, the exercise was not pleasant. Interesting. So and, we didn't expect that at all. And the reason, to setting it up that way, I mean, was the thinking behind that, that you wanted to account for a placebo effect? Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Another time we did a placebo effect, we had an experiment with a group of students and we told them that uh, these were totally naive students. We said that, you know, that... Uh, when you work in the heat, you get tired, uh, but you also know that it's important to warm up before exercise. And therefore, we want to see the benefits of heating versus cooling. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we had three different conditions one in which the device was set at a warm temperature, one in which it was set at a cold temperature, and one that it was set at what seemed to be a neutral temperature. 
well as you as I told you before, cooling too much causes vasoconstriction. Mm-hmm. So the students immediately got the idea that it was the cold one that was the beneficial was working, one. Right. No, it was the one that was neutral. Neutral, interesting, <laughs> interesting. And is there, uh, is there uh, like one sport over another where you would find better results? For example, like does this, is this better for strength athletes or just as good for endurance athletes or is there some kind of differentiation? Well, obviously, because the device is not something that's currently wearable, it's better for episodic use. Right. And that means short burst activities, uh, sprints that may, you know, or, or short distance runs uh, that uh, are not going to uh, take, you know, interval, that long. interval training. Interval on a track training or is good. Like so anaerobic activities. But we are building right now, we're prototyping wearable systems. Uh-huh. So the first one we built, interestingly and enough- This isn't gonna get really interesting now. <laughs> yes. This brings up a whole other thing that yeah. we could talk about, about the future of sport in general. Yeah. Yeah. So the first systems that we built are for military working dogs. <laughs> All right, explain that. <laughs> uh, dogs overheat, uh-huh. right? Well, when they overheat, they probably can't smell as well. When right? they overheat, they pant. When they're panting, they're not sniffing. Uh-huh. So uh, we were able to build a system which went on the paws of the dogs and they wore the, the cooling uh, control components on a backpack. And uh, we used it in Iditarod dogs, tested it out mm. on Iditarod dogs, and uh, it's worked quite well. Is so it? that's a prototype. So then we immediately took that this past year because of the Ebola epidemic, which was very much in the news, uh, we challenged a class that we were teaching to, first of all, characterize the heat stress associated with working in Ebola gear and then quantifying the mitigation of that heat stress by wearing a wearable cooling system. Mm-hmm. So essentially we took the dog system and then built it for humans so that we were actually cooling the hands, but under Ebola gear. Right, like a hazmat suit, basically. Hazmat suit, exactly, uh-huh. exactly. And uh, so that was the challenge for the class for the quarter. And by the end of the quarter, we sent a couple systems over to Sierra Leone for uh, the Ebola workers to test out. We haven't gotten results back yet. Yeah, very, very interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's getting into this thing. I wanna talk about like, you know, uses beyond um, athletics and performance, but just while we're camping out here on, on this subject, I mean, you know, at some point you will develop a wearable yeah. version of this. Right. And so immediately I foresee, you know, every marathon runner, you know, running with gloves, every cyclist having them, every athlete. And, and so it brings up a very interesting philosophical conversation about the direction of sport and where is that dividing line between pure clean sport and performance, enhance, and performance enhancement yeah, and right. where do we draw that line? And, you know, 20, 30 years ago, okay, steroids, you know, we get it, it's, it's drugs or it's not, you're clean or you're doping but that is becoming a much grayer area as we blur these lines and we start getting into genetic manipulation and all kinds of crazy stuff that is gonna make you know, this world of sport become very murky and cloudy. And I, I think it's, you know, I don't, right. I don't purport to have an right. opinion right. on that, but I think that it's something that we all need to be talking about and yep. being aware of, you know, because I'm just thinking, well, if I'm, if I'm you know, in Hawaii, and I'm running a double marathon on the Kona coast 
and I'm wearing this glove, I'm gonna have a huge, and I, and I can continually you know, replace the ice or whatever and keep it cold. The advantage is extraordinary over yeah. the competitor that doesn't have it. And yeah. so is that fair, is it not fair? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that's, yeah. A, that's this very interesting world that we're getting into yeah. here. Well, uh, I, I agree, but what you're doing now is you're just essentially enhancing your body's normal mm-hmm. uh, cooling mechanisms. So if you wanted to rule it out, let's say for a football team, then wouldn't you have to also rule out the misting fans? Wouldn't you have to rule out the- That's what I'm saying. It's very gray. Yeah, you know, the, right. the gradation right. between what's okay and what's not right. starts to become, it becomes very, very difficult to parse that out. Right. I mean, so, you know, right now, multi-sport athletes, cyclists, triathletes, they, a big thing to do is to use these Normatec boots, right? Mm-hmm, which are mm-hmm. kind of a variation on a theme as to what yep. you're doing. So yep. what do those boots do that's different, that is beneficial? Like it's a, they're not cooling, but they are, I, I, what my understanding is that they're helping, they're helping the blood flow increase, right? So they're flushing out mm-hmm. the muscles and they're reducing the inflammation and that has you know, some impact on the body's ability to recover. Yep. yep. But if you could compare, if you could combine these two products, if you could actually sure. have coolant, yeah. you know, using your technology and combine that with what yeah. the Normatec boots are doing, that would even be that would be an extra boost. Yeah. Boost, I would imagine. So yeah, you're right. It's a gray area, but you know, in sports, you are always improving equipment. So better tennis rackets, better shoes, mm-hmm. better skis. Uh, now the contrast in my mind is that with things like uh, performance enhancing drugs is that you are pushing the body out of normal. Whereas what you're doing with cooling is you're enhancing the return to normal. Mm-hmm. So you're getting rid of the heat. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if you want an interesting comparison, we did one. Uh, we did uh, a comparison study in which we looked at the values in the literature for the effects of anabolic steroids uh, on strength conditioning versus the sorts of things that we were doing. And I've just told you about some experiments in which we were get over a period of, you know, six weeks getting 200, 300% improvements. Multiple published reports on using bench press as the metric show that use of anabolic steroids results in a 1% per week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, so it's not even com- comparable. Not even comparison. Which is why when and you, you- have all the side effects. Which is why when you sit down and you, you start to Google what your work and yeah. you, you, know, you put it in there, you get the clickbaity headlines, like better than steroid, you know, you yeah, get right, kind right, of, right. you know, these extreme headlines. But yeah, that's quite <laughs> amazing without the uh, testicular shrinkage problem. It doesn't leave a residue, right? <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> Uh, it's all, yeah, it's all, it's all very, very interesting. I mean, you know, to kind of follow that philosophical thread, you know, what you're doing is really just giving the body uh, a means to do what it would ordinarily right. do. But what would the, like, if we're, if we're having like a, um, a Manhattan project on this idea, mm-hmm. if you were to take some kind of pill that would prevent the vasoconstriction and you could put your hand in ice or something like that, like, where do you how do you distinguish those things? Like here you're, okay, you're taking a foreign yeah, substance yeah, into your yeah, body. Yeah, yeah. So that is qualitatively different. The impact is the same. Well, there is you're using a te- an external technology. Yeah. There are a couple substances like that, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Dark chocolate. Oh yeah. <laughs> causes vasodilation. Uh-huh. <laughs>
What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Let's talk a little bit about just inflammation and overall health, right? Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so you know, a lot of the exercise-induced stress, you know, without this device, I mean, your your body's natural reaction. You have a you have an immune system response. Uh, you get inflamed around these areas. That impedes the recovery process. Your technology is is sort of short short circuiting that, preventing a lot of that inflammation. Um, but you can also there are other ways too, like diet and right. and other you right. know other ways to keep that inflammation down. Right, uh, definitely uh, keeping inflammation down is is beneficial, mm -hmm. um, and it may well be that our technology is not the best for treating uh, inflammation due to injury. So, for example, you know if you have a sprained ankle, uh, ice is good. Mm -hmm. And what you're doing is you're actually cooling that ankle very much below body temperature, whereas our device would lower the overall body temperature a little bit, but it's not necessarily going to give you the therapeutic uh, cooling that you get with a direct icing or something like, uh, well, some of the devices that are out there in the market, uh, Game Ready, mm -hmm. for example, which is a really good way of, of cooling a shoulder, cooling an elbow, cooling a knee uh, that has been a sprained, injured, has inflammation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and, and beyond kind of the world of athletics, uh, you know, the applications for this, I would imagine are still evolving, but oh, yes. beyond like yes. DARPA super soldiers yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and dogs that can smell really well and go all day. Like what are some of the other applications that you're starting to see? Well, one that uh, we're very 
happy with is uh, helping patients with multiple sclerosis. So individuals with multiple sclerosis, uh, when they still have mobility, uh, we, we can't cure the disease by any means. We, we probably can't change the course of the disease, but we can improve the quality of life because many individuals uh, that are mobile with, and have multiple sclerosis, they're incredibly temperature sensitive. Mm. The ambient temperature goes up a little bit or they get a little bit active, their symptoms flare up. So by having cooling available, uh, they're able to extend their capacity to lead normal lives. So instead of having in the summer to remain in an air-conditioned uh, house, they can go out and go shopping, play golf, uh, you know, go for walks and, mm-hmm. and so forth. So that, that is one thing that uh, we've been very, very happy about. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I w- I'm thinking like... Let's say you know this becomes like a sort of household uh, consumer yeah. product. Yeah. Uh, if everybody, <laughs> you know, if everybody has these gloves, <clears throat> you know, maybe a future model has a a dial on it where you can you know make it warm or make it cold. Yes. Then suddenly uh, the ambient temperature of your home becomes less important, right? You could save exactly. energy costs on air conditioning and heating exactly. because if you're regulating your core temperature through this device, then it doesn't necessarily matter as much how cold the room is or warm exactly. the room. Exactly. <laughs> we actually are working on a project right now funded by the Department of Energy to do just that. That's amazing. To develop uh, not the extreme heating and cooling that we've been involved with, with the recovery from hyperthermia and hypothermia, but just increasing the thermal comfort zone for individuals. Mm-hmm. The Department of Energy has calculated that if they're able to broaden the dead band on thermostats by four degrees. In other words, office buildings and apartments, so forth and so on. You could save the equivalent amount of energy of taking 25% of the cars off the road. Mm -hmm. Because when you're heating or cooling a room, it's a very inefficient use of energy. You're Mm -hmm. you're heating or cooling everything in that room, all the furniture, the walls. And And it dissipates quickly. Yeah, yeah. So if instead you could make individuals more comfortable in a thermal environment that is either warmer or colder, uh, you could save an enormous amount of energy. So we're working with uh, colleagues at uh, SRI to uh, develop not only functional devices for the hands and the feet, but also attractive, fashionable ones that uh-huh. uh, people would be inclined to wear and right. increase their thermal some, comfort. Some big mitt that you can't type on your computer. <laughs> right, no, that, <laughs> like, that wouldn't quite Hardly work. a fashion accessory, <laughs> right? Right. But I mean, conceptually, could you sit in a very cold room yes. Yes. with this glove on that's keeping yes. your core temperature warm and not feel, and, yes. and, you, and you would be comfortable? Yes. That's yep. super amazing. We, we, we just did it with a, once again, our one of our classes, uh, we had them uh, for 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 two hours twice a week. They had to come into a particular room where they would sit and work on their data, mm-hmm. and uh, the room temperature was cycling up and down, ramping up and ramping down. And every five minutes, a buzzer rang, and they just had to punch a number into uh, their computer on a scale, uh, one through six, uh, indicating the thermal comfort. You know, mm-hmm. uh, three being absolutely comfortable, six being too hot, one being too cold. And uh, so what we did is we then put their, had them keep their feet, their bare feet on little heat exchange pads. 
So all we did was ramp the foot temperature in antiphase with the room temperature. Uh-huh. And what we were able to do is, ex- and they're doing this quite unconsciously. Every five minutes they push a button, they push a button. They're not thinking about it, okay? And what we showed is that we could increase their thermal comfort by four degrees. Wow, interesting. Uh, That's amazing. Um, you know, back to the athletic context, uh, I'm thinking, you know, a type A athlete who has access to this, mm-hmm. um, does it make it more likely that they could overtrain? Because suddenly, yes. you know, they're pushing themselves too hard. They feel good. They feel like they're recovering yes. when suddenly they've increased their training load too yes. quickly. And whether that leads to injury or right. some kind of burnout or something like that, I could see that potential existing. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we have trainers and coaches. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's possible no matter what you're doing to overtrain or to overexert yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, because if, you, if you're not feeling sore and you yep. go and you do way more pull-ups, I mean, you could just tear your muscle right out. Well, without... Eventually you will feel the pain. Yeah. I mean, pain is a wonderful, wonderful phenomenon. But the body kind of is evolved to, you know, sort of naturally signal you when yes. it's time to stop, right? And exactly. you're sort of removing a little bit of that. Well, not necessarily. We're removing one of the... So, so we're actually removing the phenomenon that causes the damage. Okay. Right? The hyperthermia, the overheating creates damage. So, But you're still creating those muscle tears. Um, presumably, mm-hmm. which is part of, of conditioning. No, no. The, the reason we stopped uh, our very first experiment uh, on the pull-ups was that our, uh, our uh, lab assistant was beginning to get uh, sore tendons in his uh-huh. wrists. Right, right. And uh, so, oh, we... I mean, 620 pull-ups. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty good because they they won't they can't acclimate as quickly as the muscle, right? Is that right, right. the idea behind yeah. that? Well, tendonitis, you know, you 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 can damage your tendons and they yeah. don't heal up very rapidly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So sure, uh, and that's why the devices over in our department of athletics are in the hands of the trainers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the trainers are uh, advising the athletes how to use them. Is there any indication that, that that use of this could have some impact on longevity or disease prevention beyond the multiple multiple sclerosis example? Well, it doesn't prevent multiple sclerosis. This is just improving the quality of life. Uh, there are a number of other medical conditions that we're interested in pursuing. So uh, one, are, well, one set of conditions are uh, uh, things that happen with diabetes, so peripheral neuropathy, uh, ulceration, and so forth. So we're interested in finding out whether or not increasing blood flow to those parts of the body mm-hmm. uh, by using the heat and the vacuum would uh, would decrease the probability of getting peripheral neuropathy and, and ulceration. So I think, you know, if, if indeed the technology encourages people to be more active and to be active later in life, that will be an indirect right. avenue towards increasing longevity and preventing uh, degeneration. Right, right, right. Uh, right now, it's very popular to kind of do this uh, protocol of getting in the ice bath and then going into the sauna <laughs> and then jumping into yeah, the ice yeah. bath and kind of, you know, doing that routine for however long. And, and there are plenty of people out there that really, they love, not only they love it, 
uh, they will tell you that like, this is the secret of youth and this is keeping them healthy and disease free and, and helping them recover from their workouts and all of that. I mean, is there a basis for that in your mind? Is this, is this a, something that is good to do? I mean, I what is your, you don't know. I don't know. You don't know. It feels good. If you like it, do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as someone who went swimming at the North Pole, I can say that it felt good. Oh, you did? <laughs> when did you do that? Uh, it was a number of years ago on a uh, trip uh, on a Russian icebreaker to the North Pole. Wow. It was sort of on a dare from and the just, Russian And you crew. just jumped in? Yeah. How long did you last? Oh, it was just a very short period of time, you know, uh-huh. a couple minutes probably. Amazing. Are, are you familiar with this guy called uh, Vim Hoff? He lives in Amsterdam. Oh, he's the guy who was frozen in a he's, block of ice? No, he's, he's just this, he's sort of a, I don't know how you would describe him. Uh, he's sort of a, 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 an expert on like mindfulness and meditation, uh-huh, uh-huh. but he's a big proponent of like cold water therapy. And uh-huh. he does these amazing swims where he goes underneath the ice for incredibly long periods of time. And uh, he's a very dynamic, charismatic guy. Yeah. Look him up on the internet, I'll send you his website. But, um, but he's, you know, he's sort of like, uh, a big proponent of this idea of being in cold water as mm-hmm. sort of this, I mean, saying fountain of youth is a little ex- exorbitant, but you know, as sort of a, a, a huge recipe in his wellness equation. Well, it certainly is a way of generating a big sympathetic nervous system response. Mm-hmm. A shot of adrenaline <laughs> will activate blood flow in all sorts of parts of the bodies. And, and maybe, you know, that's good for you. Right. I, I don't know. More, more research will be, <laughs> right. will show, right? Right. Well, uh, this has been amazing. Um, it's super, super interesting. I, I'm, I'm going to be watching how this unfolds with, uh, with a keen eye. Well, we've got to get you to and, try uh, it. Yeah, I know. I'm here. I haven't, even, I haven't even tried it myself. So I'm going to check it out. Oh, we have a pull-up bar over here. I saw you got like a little gym over here. I was like, are you running experiments on students out here? Or is that for you? You got a treadmill and a bench press like was, right outside your office. It was all for experiments, uh-huh. but... Uh, Indeed, after hours, I can hear them clanking. <laughs> Students right. come and use it after hours. Uh-huh. And are you engaged in any specific research at the moment? Oh yeah, we have uh, uh, several projects at the moment. One is this one I told you about with the Department of Energy to mm-hmm. improve thermal comfort. Another one, uh, which is just getting started, is a project with the Navy to develop systems for casualty transport uh, in the field, uh, casualties become hypothermic very fast. Mm. And uh, they have to, with a minimum of equipment, get casualties back to a field hospital. And uh, so we can, we can develop a system that uh, weighs only a few pounds and could uh, be employed directly when the first responder gets there uh, to stabilize temperature. We have another system like that, which is about to go on market for veterinary application for veterinary surgery. Uh, we have a, another project that we are engaged in with, as I explained, the wearable uh, mm-hmm. system uh, under hazmat gear uh, to bring that to a, a level that it can be manufactured. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine, you know, firefighters could wear this. Exactly. There's all kinds of applications right. for that. There have been firefighters who have used uh, the systems that we have now. Uh, and they they seem to generate a lot of benefit. And then we have another little project which uh, we're engaged in right now, and that is uh, using the technology to treat migraine headaches. Oh, wow. So we don't have any results yet. 
but. Uh. <laughs> well, my wife might want to talk to you. Oh, we'd She's love had to a, have life, her. a lifetime of, of battling migraines and always looking for solutions. Okay. So she wants to be a subject. I'll, I'll, I think she probably will. Okay, we have our IRB clearance, so we're ready to go. <laughs> I'll talk to her about <laughs> okay. it. Um, very, very cool. And, and, and before I let you go though, an additional kind of fascinating fact about you is that this is not your only field of research, right? You're, you have an expertise in learning disabilities and Down syndrome and also right. in sleep. Well, yeah, our, our basic research is in sleep and biological rhythms. And uh, we've recently been exte- carrying that into the field of learning and memory. And specifically, mm. we got involved with Down syndrome uh, as uh, the most common uh, genetic cause of learning disability in humans. Uh, it's one in 700 births. It's, it's huge. Uh, and we think that we can greatly improve the quality of life of, of these individuals. Uh, all of our work so far has been on mice. Uh, mm-hmm. We have a mouse model of Down syndrome and we can normalize its learning. And uh, that has led to a clinical trial, which is uh, just coming to a conclusion now in Australia. So we should know very soon whether or not this therapy is as beneficial uh, in human uh, with Down syndrome as it has been. What is the, but what is the, what is the effect on the, uh, this on the is syndrome? A, this is a drug therapy. Uh, and what it does is it decreases the level of inhibition in the brain. And uh, when the therapy is used, uh, the learning ability comes back. Oh, wow. So the simple idea that led to this was that the problem is, is due to increased inhibition in the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, the brain, you know, people think of the brain as working like a uh, a puppeteer, you know, pulling strings and the muscles respond. But the brain is more like the concert conductor, mm-hmm. uh, bringing some things up, lowering other things, speeding some things up, slowing other things down. And uh, inhibition is just as important as excitation. Wow. So it turned out that in the mouse model, if we just paired that inhibition back a little bit, boom, the learning came back. Mm. Amazing. And uh, we're now hoping that we'll see the same effect in the, in the humans. Very cool. Yeah. Well, maybe uh, uh, I can come back and talk to you about sleep. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah, <laughs> if you'll have me. Oh yeah. Did we do okay? Oh yeah. Is it That's all right? Great. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Feel good? Did I yeah. miss anything? No, I, uh, there's always a lot to talk about. <laughs> yeah. No, I could talk to you for many, many hours. Well, I appreciate your time. Uh, super fascinating uh, what you're doing. And again, you know, I'm gonna be, uh, I'm gonna be tracking it. It's gonna be interesting to see how it plays out and evolves over time. Um, but I appreciate your time very much. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about uh, this product, go to avacore.com, right? Lots of information up up there about that, uh, as well as a link to the Indiegogo. But I think by the time I post this, that might might be closed. But I'll also put up uh, a whole bunch of links to articles about the product and Professor Heller's research in the show notes. So be sure to go to richworld.com and you can check that out, right? Yeah, Anything you have to, have to be sure you go to avacore.com because if you go to avacore.com, you get therapies for baldness. Oh, okay. We don't want that, right? <laughs> well, some people might want well, that. Well, some people might want yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And of course, Professor Heller is always available at office hours, so you can feel free to drop in on him and have <laughs> a conversation like I did, right? Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Peace. 
right. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Thanks for taking the ride with me. Again, make sure to visit the show notes on the episode page at richworld.com to read up, learn more, and take your knowledge base and podcast experience beyond the earbuds. For all your plant power needs, visit richworld.com. Check out our new book, The Plant Power Way, Lifestyle Guide, 120 plant-based recipes to please even the most finicky meat eater in your family. We're really proud of that book. Uh, We have signed copies of that as well as signed copies of Finding Ultra if you wanna get a signed version of these books. We have our amazing organic, 100% organic cotton plant power t-shirts. Rock the message as best you can. We also have uh, running tech tees, plant power running tech tees. Uh, We have some nutrition products. We've got temporary tattoos. We've got stickers. We've got fine art prints. We've got all kinds of cool stuff. So peruse the store at ritual.com and uh, let us help you take your health and your life to the next level. I'll see you guys in a few days. Uh, The next time you hear from me, I'm going to be recording from Europe. Looking very much forward to that. And I hope you guys are having a great week. Speak to you soon. Peace. Plants. 